Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Good morning. Today is the day. I I love it when here on Mornings with Carmen, we get to be uh, a provocateur of good. And so in the category of provocateur of good, I don't know, provocating, provocating, provocating good. So Ben Johnson from the Acton Institute was here on the program on August the 22nd. So that's last week, last Thursday. And one of the things that uh, he and I talked about and touched on was something that I then said, hey, Ben, you should go write a blog about that. And he has. So if you go to Acton, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G, um, you will find there a blog by Ben Johnson entitled The King of Israel, The Caesar Strategy or Cultural Renewal. And uh, it's excellent, as is everything that Ben writes. And it is about the national debate ignited by the president when he shared a comment referring to himself by the messianic title King of Israel. And so it's um, it's uh, it's an interesting deep dive into that concept and that conversation. And so I just wanted to commend that to you because we actually provoked that here on Mornings with Carmen. And so I feel like, you know, that's we're doing we're doing good by provoking other people to think about things and think about them and help us think about them as well. So. Grab, uh, you can go grab the uh, audio, the podcast of that conversation from August the 22nd. Uh, you can do that at reconnectwithcarmen.com, which is my ministry website, or you can do it at myfaithradio.com as well. We also talked in that conversation with Ben about Planned Parenthood and Title 10, which you just heard referenced there in the top of the hour uh, in SRN News. So we are talking about the headline news of the day. Yesterday, we talked with Justin Gibney from the AND campaign about leadership and what he and others uh, who are, you know, young African-American millennials, what are they looking for in terms of leadership national, you know, on the national front? And I really appreciated what Justin uh, said in terms of like vision and character and authenticity, expertise, experience, the ability to connect with people from a wide range of human experience without feeling the need to act like you share their unique heritage or their life experience. And so, you know, I can uh, I can have an empathy for others and I can have a concern for them that is then um, relieved, addressed through policies and through programs and through the reformation of current systems without sort of suggesting to people that, you know, I am who you are, because that's just not true. I need to be who I am. And then what does authentic leadership look like and what do American families and American companies need in terms of authentic leadership? So we've had this ongoing leadership conversation um, with Bill English here on on the program. We are now uh, in part 10 of that conversation. Leadership lessons from the life of David. And that's where we turn here in the next segment. So if you've ever been in a dry place. If you have ever um, had the sense and known that you were called to do something in terms of God's kingdom, in terms of God's glory, that for some reason there were 
roadblocks in front of you. There was an inability to um, to get to the place where you had either the position or the resources or the support to do what you were you knew you were called to do. Well, today's lesson from the life of King David, this is really for you. Uh, David was more than 10 years in what we were going to call a desert experience. Um, And God was present there, too. So that's up next here with Bill English from BibleandBusiness.com. Leadership lessons we learn from the life of David. All right, Bill English is back in the house from BibleandBusiness.com. Welcome back, my friend. Hey, we're there. Now we're on. Yeah, good. Thanks. Yeah, you're on, man. You're on. Yeah, you're on. on. You're live. I'm on live. <laughs> and in living color. Do you remember yeah. living color from the I 70s? remember black and white. I remember black and white. If that's, you know, like sort of you move from black and white to, yeah. to living color. Yeah, yeah. I remember that, yeah. too. Okay. Okay, so, um, Bill. Yes, ma'am. We have we have arrived with David in First Samuel chapter nineteen, verse eleven. How about, yeah, how about just uh, just tell us the story of where we are with David at this point in the you know in the scriptures uh, retelling of his life. Sure. So at this point, Saul has tried to kill him several times. David has fled uh, to uh, Samuel's area in Ramoth. And Saul sends men to David's house to watch it and to kill him in the morning. Uh, But Michael, uh, David's wife, warns him, you know, you better get out of here or you're a dead man. And so much like Rahab, she lets him out of the window uh, through a through a rope or or through the window with a rope. And David escapes and goes to uh, Samuel. Saul finds out about this and he starts to send men to kill him. Right. And uh, and eventually, Saul, government hit squads. Basically, yeah. Like, right? I, mean, I mean, like people I mean, need to think is... about it this way. We're talking about the sitting government. Like Saul is the king of of the government. This is the this is the institutional system. There's a military that is literally at Saul's service. Right. And yeah. So yeah, this is a government hit squad. Go yeah. Ahead. This is this is beyond mafioso stuff. I mean, David did the mafioso stuff, uh, but Saul is actually uh, misusing the power of the government. Uh, for evil. Finally, Saul uh, goes to try to find David and kill him himself. And God sends on Saul, not an evil spirit like he has done in the past, but now he sends on Saul the Holy Spirit. And Saul starts to prophesy. And Saul uh, is prophesying for so long and apparently so well that people begin to ask, is Saul also among the prophets? The point is, is that David is protected by Saul being distracted by the Holy Spirit coming on him and him doing some prophesying. So um, the men, by the way, that were also sent to kill David also experienced the same thing. So you you start to look at this and you go, okay, God is completely sovereign, like we talked about last week. He is completely sovereign over evil. He is also completely sovereign over good as well. You know, one of the things as you as you retell that story, I my heart goes out to the people of the day who were, you know, like, right, they're trying to understand the times in which they live in the same way we try to understand the times in which we live. And they are um, looking to prophets. They are looking at history. They are looking at the promises of God. 
they are seeking to live as the people of God in the context of the world, um, you know, that, that they are inhabiting at that point in human history. And it's confusing. Like, this would be so confusing if you were a person alive at that time and you were trying to understand who who's in charge and who's who am I supposed to be following and who am I supposed to be supporting? I mean, I my heart goes out to the people. And they're probably wondering, in addition to that, did we make a mistake by bringing in a king? Remember, Samuel's still here. Okay, and, well, yeah, no question. And right? Samuel, no, there, you know, the words, go ahead, go ahead. No, I'm just saying, like, right, we all know, because we have the privilege of looking back on this, and we have the privilege of the scriptures and the entire corpus of them. We know it was a mistake for Israel to ever want a king, let alone to have a king that was in the flesh, because they already had a king and he was God. And so, right, like all of this is the complicated history that works itself out as a byproduct of Israel's unfaithfulness. Exactly. All right. Samuel's still there. Should we have done a king? This isn't working out very well for us. You know, and then especially I would think the one of the most more confusing points for them would have been uh, when Samuel and his son Jonathan are killed on Mount Kaboa by the Philistines. And if you ever look at the geography of where that is, that is in the heart of the upper part of Israel, right? I mean, that's just right next to the Jordan River, just south of the Sea of Galilee. That's where that's where he is killed. And they got to be wondering to themselves, our, our sworn enemies have just taken our king within the heart of our land. What is going on here? I, I, I yeah. would think that would have been confusing for them as well. Yeah, I mean, clearly they understood uh, that Samuel was a prophet. Clearly they understood that Jonathan was the heir apparent to the throne. I mean, right, I just think that the whole, I, it's, I just think it's important for us to, when we're reading the scriptures, particularly in the Old Testament, that we that we allow ourselves to return to the context. And we allow ourselves to um, settle there for a moment and try to get in touch with what the people would have been experiencing and the access to information, which was super limited, right? It's not like people were all on Twitter and so instantly knew all at the same time that something had happened. You know, everything is word of mouth. It takes a long period of time for information to be transmitted uh, across any distance at all. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that just in terms of historical context, all of that is an interesting part of this conversation. So David's experience uh, in all of this is what we want to now focus on. David is clearly God's man. He has been anointed, but he is not yet acknowledged um, by the world as the king. He is uh, he has an experience that's challenging at best. So when we return, let's talk about David's experience in the desert and what he learns about God uh, while he's there. So that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen, my conversation partner, Bill English. We are uh, we are looking at the leadership lessons we learn from the life of David. You can find it all at BibleandBusiness.com. All right, returning to my conversation with Bill English from BibleandBusiness.com. We are in 1 Samuel chapter 19, beginning at verse 11, and we are talking about the experience of David. Yes. All right. So just what is David's experience in what we're just describing as this desert experience? I'm going to speculate here. It's been at least 10 years he's been running from Saul or trying to serve Saul. Uh, of course, it started with him killing Goliath in, in the valley. And, and ever since then, it's either gone fairly well or really sideways. 
and uh, and and right now he's just trying to save his life and run and see what he can do to to stay alive. In the midst of all that, he knows he's been anointed to be king, right? I mean, he knows this, and he's got to be wondering at some point, God, when are you going to fulfill your promise to me to make me king? I mean, really make me king. And, uh, you know, what else do I got to go through here before I get there? And it, it just seems to me that if I was David, I would have some, I don't want to say the word despair, but some word that's less intense than that. Uh, that's what I would be feeling. It's like, man, when is this going to be over? Right. And so um, he's separated, I mean, you know, in time and by geography from his wife from for, for a very long period of time here. Yes. Um, he is. He doesn't have like a base of operations that you and I might think about as sort of the comfort zone out of which to operate. He's literally on the run um, and he's being hunted by his own government. This does not sound like um, the way a person under the anointing of God might expect things to be playing out. Well, there's a lot of people who would say, almost like uh, Job's friends, what sin do you have in your life, David? Yeah. All these bad things are happening to you, right? Right. But it, it's Job and David and others in, in, uh, in the scriptures show us that just because bad things happen to us doesn't mean that we have sin in our lives. Sometimes those bad things happen to us quite frankly, because God wants to uh, mature us and hone us into the people and the leaders that he wants us to be. And the way that he does that, whether we like it or not, is through adversity and through trial. And so sometimes those trials look pretty bleak. Doesn't necessarily mean you got sin in your life. So in terms of what David begins to recognize, um, I, I, let me, I want to go back to something you said before the break, that um, when Saul is prophesying and people are interpreting that one way, it's actually creating this protected space yes. for David. So talk about how God does what he does sometimes in a way that is just completely contrary to the way we might think something should happen. Um, and And that really is God doing what God needs to do in order to get what God intends in the future. Isn't it interesting, Carmen, how often we pray, God, please solve this problem or do this thing in such a way that you get all the glory, right? And then when he does it in such a way that only he can get the glory, we kind of scratch our heads and say, wow, how did that work? Would, would, did God really do that? You know, is this really God in this? Seems to me that God is sovereign and 100% sovereign over evil, 100% sovereign over the Holy Spirit and good. And God decided to use prophesying as a way to protect David instead of, I don't know, some other method. But the point is, is that God gets the glory because God is the only one who could have done this with Saul. Just like he sends an evil spirit on Saul, he sent the Holy Spirit on Saul. I don't have all the answers to that theologically, you know, because that opens up a a Pandora's box uh, for, uh, for the modern day systematic theologian, which I am not, by the way. I'm a biblical theologian, not a systematic guy. But um, uh, it's, it's really something to ponder. So as you are, uh, as you are pondering, my friend, um, <laughs> I wonder, you know, I wonder in your, in your own experience and in you know, your observations about the experiences of others, this certainly is true for me. Um, God's protection has not always uh, meant the resolution of my immediate pain. (laughs) 
God's protection has not has not always uh, resulted in the resolution of the problem. And I right. think that part of leadership is right. living in that reality, living in the tension that the problem is actually not going away, um, but I am going to be protected to live in the midst of it. Yes, God's protection doesn't mean resolving your problems. In fact, some problems are not going to go away. As a leader, sometimes the best you can do is manage a problem. You're never going to be able to resolve it. We see this uh, in, in, in the political world, president after president after president, regardless of party, tries to tackle the Middle East. That is a problem that is not going to get resolved anytime soon. It's only a problem that you can manage. We see this in business. We see this in families. We see this in almost every area of life. I'm sure there are pastors listening right now who have some parishioners. The best they can do is manage that problem. They're never going to really resolve it. Um, how do we how do we deal with that? Does that mean that God doesn't care? I don't think so. I, I kind of go to that, that Romans passage where Paul says, three times I asked God to take away this thorn in the flesh, and he told me my grace is sufficient for you, right? There are some things in our lives that we're going to have that God uh, allows to be there for a long period of time in order to refine us and to keep us humble. All right, we're going to have to leave it right there. I got Philip Yancey up next, and so I'm so sorry, but you and I have to draw our conversation to a close, but you'll be back, right? We're gonna we're gonna do lesson eleven. All right, so we are back. in the midst of a series on the leadership lessons from the life of David. That is Bill English. You can check it all out at Bibleandbusiness.com. Thank you, my friend. Okay, so through whose eyes do you see the world? I mean I know that you're immediately gonna say, Well, I see the world through my own eyes, but your worldview, your perception of things, certainly your theological outlook, has been informed, formed, transformed by someone. And and maybe by a series of people, right? Those are the people who have discipled you. You see the world through the eyes of those who have helped you to see God and to and who have helped you to see the world through God's perspective. So when I lift up an author like Philip Yancey, who has written more than 25 books, and and there's a lot of people who see the world through Philip Yancey's eyes, it's important to know who helped Philip Yancey frame his worldview. Well, that guy's name is Paul Brand. Paul Brand grew up in India. He studied medicine in London, practiced orthopedic surgery in India and the United States, um, world-renowned for his innovative techniques in the treatment of leprosy. Dr. Paul Brand died in 2003. But Philip Yancey says of himself, I see the world largely through his eyes. Yancey lost his dad when he was just a year old, um, and and Paul Brand really became a father figure in his life. So what we're going to do in the next half hour is we're going to talk to Philip Yancey about this book that he now offers, Fearfully and Wonderfully, which is a 30-year rewrite of the work that he did collaboratively with Paul Brand. It, it's just incredible. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. If the paint on the side of your house began to peel or the roof started leaking or your porch light burned out, would you just sit around and do nothing? Well, of course not. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. When things start to fall apart around your house, we instinctively grab a screwdriver, reach for a paintbrush, or do whatever it takes to get things back in order. And in like manner, our relationships need maintenance too. Has your relationship with your team become damaged by conflict, tension, or poor communication? Sounds like it's time for a little home improvement. Take on this important do-it-yourself project before it's too late. Read a good book, attend a helpful seminar, and above all, 
Keep reaching out to your team. Want more help from Mark Gregston? Find books and other resources online at parentingtodaysteens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. Welcome back. Thrilled to be joined today by Philip Yancey. He really needs no introduction for most of you. He has written 25 books, many of which you are already familiar with. Today, we're going to talk about Fearfully and Wonderfully, The Marvel of Bearing God's Image. Philip Yancey, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you very much, Carmen. So this is a this is a new book for a new time, but it's not all brand new content, and this book has a rich history. So tell us um, tell us where this book really starts and comes from. Yes, back in, oh my goodness, it would have been um, 1976. <laughs> I was 26 years old, and I was writing a book, Where is God When It Hurts?, a book on the problem of pain. While I was researching that, I came across this distinguished British surgeon who had a completely different view of pain. He worked with leprosy patients, and he's the one who discovered that all the problems that leprosy patients endure come about because they don't feel pain. And uh, I was fascinated. So I called him up out of the blue and said, I'd like to come interview you. In the process, we ended up working together for about 10 years. And I found out that he had done a little booklet uh, based on chapel talks he gave to a medical college in India. When I read that, I thought, this is amazing stuff. Here's a scientist who's looking at the human body who tells these wonderful stories from working with patients in India, and then who draws spiritual applications. I've never seen anything like this. So I asked him if I could take it and just devote the years that it took to write ultimately two books, Fearfully and Wonderfully Made and In His Image. But that was 35 years ago, and a lot has changed since then. Science has changed. Medicine has changed. Dr. Brain has uh, since passed on. And uh, readers have changed. <laughs> They're more demanding. And I, I took the material. I wanted to keep his legacy alive for a whole new generation. I took the material, reworked it, did the best of, combined the two books, cut about half the material out, and left left the great stories, left the applications, and updated them for a modern generation. So when people um, crack the binding of Fearfully and Wonderfully, they read this from Psalm 139. You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I would just like for you to reflect on that verse of Scripture. Yes. You know, the, the times we're usually conscious of our bodies, those times are when things go wrong. <laughs> you know, I pull a muscle or I wake up with a cold and all of these uh, symptoms that we don't like, things like a, a running nose or a cough or vomiting or diarrhea, you know, we don't even want to think about those things. They're actually marvelous ways in which our body is trying to get rid of problems. And we can we can go through that. But But I like the fact that Dr. Brand exposed me to what a healthy body is doing all day long without me thinking about it. What's involved with my heart beating for 70 years so far? with no downtime for repair that courses blood cells through my body. In fact, while I was saying that sentence, in my bone marrow, 
there were created five million red blood cells. Every few seconds that happens, and and all while I'm talking, I'm actually moving my hands here, even though we're we're on the telephone, and and he exposed to me all that's involved in the mind controlling the muscles and the nerves and to be able to say catch a baseball or a football when somebody throws it that's almost miraculous when you go through the mechanics involved and uh, compared to the very best robotics we have you know there are there are artificial hands that people use in nuclear devices uh, or in hospital devices, but compared to even a four-year-old child, a five-year-old child, they're like little little play toys. The marvel built into each one of us, we are indeed fearfully and wonderfully made. And the fact that we're made in God's image just opens up a whole area of exploration that we've tried to do in these two books together. So in part one of Fearfully and Wonderfully, you um, you talk about the invisible made visible and and human mirrors. Um, introduce us to uh, to that to that thought. Yes, Dr. Franex, who did his um, residency back in the bombing of London, the Blitz in World War II, and he worked on some of the airmen. These were the prime specimens of England. They actually saved the country by shooting down these German bombers. But there was a flaw in their plane. When it was hit, the engine was in the front and the fuel line went through the cockpit. So a fire would burst into the cockpit and they were able to escape. They would hit an eject button and parachute down to safety. But in the meantime, their face had burned off. And he worked with the plastic surgeons who kind of recreated these faces. But again, the the body is amazing. You cannot find any parts of the body that would replace that thin skin patch that would constitute our eyelids or the beautiful sensitivity of our lips. You you can do your best, but as soon as you look at a person who's been rehabilitated like that, you know there's something wrong. This is not the original design. And one of the airmen told him, because he kept asking, can you can you change this a little bit? Can you add this little tuck? And he realized they were they were afraid to go out and meet the outside world because here they were the the prime people of England and they were used to being respected and adulated and getting awards and now they just they looked ugly. And this airman said to him, "People become our mirror." He happened to be his name was Peter Foster. He happened to be married. He happened to be engaged to a, a young woman, and. She stuck with him. She said, a few millimeters of skin do not hide the fact that the Peter Foster I love is still there. And she became his mirror. So when he doubted his own physical appearance, he would look at her and her smile and her love would become that mirror. And Dr. Brand goes ahead and makes the application. That's true for all of us. The way we treat someone who's disabled or someone who's sad or depressed or someone who's homeless, that we you know, we drive up on a street corner, the way we treat, whether we just kind of glance away or we look and engage and whether you give money or not, just treat them like a real person, that becomes a mirror that can help shape that person, the image of God in that person. I'm talking with Philip Yancey. Uh, we are discussing the new book, Fearfully and Wonderfully, The Marvel of Bearing God's Image. It's an updated and combined edition of two books that he wrote together with Dr. Paul Brand a number of years ago. Uh, and we will continue this conversation in just a moment.
Picking back up where we left off with Philip Yancey discussing uh, his new book, Fearfully and Wonderfully, The Marvel of Bearing God's Image. This is an updated and combined edition of two books that he released some 35 years ago with Dr. Paul Brand, who is uh, now with the Lord, I think we can very confidently say. Um, Philip, I would uh, I would love for you to um, simply roam around in some of the things that are different about this book because the world we live in now is different. You know, like, what did you have to add um, in order to uh, update and expand this conversation for contemporary listeners? Actually, the main thing is what I had to leave out. I mm. think that today's readers are... Um, they're more distracted. They don't have the tolerance for long exposition. They need you to get to the point right away. And and they want compelling stories. I had um, kind of equal parts in the original edition. I had equal parts of uh, the anatomy and stories of patients and then theological applications. And um, the stories of patients I, I took the very best ones and kept those. The anatomy, I had to trim quite a bit because people are just a little more intolerant of, of that kind of detail, as, as wonderful as it is. And then the theological application, of course, has changed because our society has changed. The divisiveness that is going on in the United States today, that's something that wasn't wasn't really true 30 years ago. I mean, it was underneath racism those kind of things were underneath but they were repressed they weren't right out in the open now they're out in the open and and we have a lot to learn from the image of the body presented in the new testament because structures aren't working very well government's not working very well corporations aren't working very well and it's time to take a look at a different model and the bible gives us that model the model is an organism not an organization how cells can be completely different in appearance and function and yet work together. They only work together if they're committed to the same goal, if they're committed to the direction of the head. And some of those applications apply today in a very different way than they did 30, 35 years ago. So one of the ways that I would describe it is for those of us who kind of operate in the apologetics realm of things, um, I feel like this moves from um, what might have originally felt like propositional apologetics 35 years ago into what I would now describe as um, conversational or narrative apologetics. Ooh, um, I like that. If, That's very yeah, good. Yeah. So, well, you can, you can, uh, you're free to use it. Thank you. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> I have learned a great deal from you over the years. And one, uh, one of the things I genuinely appreciate about uh, the way that you teach and write um, is that you, you use words in a way that, makes me pause. Hmm. And so I feel like one of the things you are trying to get people to do is slow down from the frenetic pace that we currently find ourselves uh, in. And and you're trying to get us to just pause and consider our skin, mm-hmm. consider our blood, consider our breath, um, consider uh, our brain. So let's talk for a minute about the brain, because it is part six of the book, but it's it really is, you know, it's the head of it all. Um, right. And so w- what do you want people to know about the brain? Well, the, the brain, interestingly, is the most isolated part of the body. The brain feels no pain. In fact, if you once you cut through the skull, you don't have to give an anesthetic when you're doing brain surgery. The brain feels no pain. Why? Well, there's no need for it. It's got this great protective barrier of bone, the skull. The brain never sees anything. It's locked away inside. The brain never smells anything. The brain never hears anything. It's connected through these little wires 
to this, the wonderful sensors out there in our ears and in our eyes and millions of touch sensors and pain sensors all over our body. And and that is, to me, an amazing model of what uh, the humiliation, the humility that Christ showed. There's that passage in Philippians 2 that uh, that uh, it says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who even though he had the prerogatives of, of the Godhead, gave it up, became a a man, not just a man, but a servant, not just a servant, but a servant who died, not just one who died, but one who died this brutal death of execution. And in a sense, God's presence receded into that headship role. God, in the Old Testament, God was often very active in a very visible way, 10 plagues of Egypt, you know, the pillar of fire and all that. Not so much now. Now God is has receded and said, I want to do my work through the body of Christ through you, through the church. And the only way the world is going to know what God is like is by the church, by Christians showing what God is like. When Jesus was here on earth, of course, he only ministered three years, but if you wanted to know what God is like, you could go up and study Jesus. He was the express image of the invisible God, as Hebrew says. But Jesus left, and he said, it's a good thing. It's for your good that I'm leaving. I'm taking a, a different kind of role, like that that hidden role of the brain, I am still the head, I am still the director, but I want to do my work through other humans because the best way to express the love of God is human to human. And that was God's plan from the beginning, the church. So I think when we talk about the church, I think when we when we think about the body, it is easy for me to think about my own body. It is easy for me to uh, know uh, at least or sense what's wrong uh, when something's wrong in my body, I mean, I have those indicators. I, I, one of the things you're compelling us to think about and consider uh, is the body of Christ, the church, our interconnectedness, the part we play in it, the role um, that we have, and to be people who recognize that the body right now is in pretty significant pain and dysfunction um, in the world. You're absolutely right. And 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 that's... <laughs> That's nothing new. When you go to the New Testament, you know, look at the letters written to places like Corinth and Galatia, and the church was a mess then, and the church is a mess now, and we shouldn't be surprised. To me, that's that's the greatest act of humility that God undertook, to entrust God's own reputation to people like us. But let me just give one example. Um, Dr. Brand was a pain specialist, and of course, through his work with leprosy, he established that pain is essential. It's one of the great gifts that we have to keep us healthy. And and he says that a, a healthy body is not a body that feels no pain, but it's a body that attends to the weakest part. And that's my message for the church. Yeah, there are going to be problems. There are going to be people, people grieving. There are going to be uh, persecuted Christians, people who are suffering for their faith. And our job as the body of Christ is not to amputate those, not to close our ears, but to attend to them, to look for the needs of the world, because we we are commissioned by God to represent what God cares about. God cares about the homeless. God cares about the oppressed. And and God cares about the hurting. I love this phrase in Second Corinthians 1. It says, it uses the phrase, the God of all comfort. I love that description of God. And it says, may the God of all comfort, who has already comforted you, give you the resources you need to bring comfort to the rest of the world. That's what we're supposed to do as a body. And we do it best if we're a healthy body, if we spend time 
uh, attacking each other and dividing and and uh, you know splitting and all these things that the church tends to do, it diminishes our role in the world because the world is hungry for a different way. It's hungry to see an organism that actually works the way God intended. So, Philip, one um, one of the things that I will observe is how much we need the content of this book and this conversation today. So many people are so deeply confused um, about the human body, about uh, human nature, about what it means to be an image bearer, um, about how intentionally God has been involved in the making of us and the calling forth of the body of Christ and what that is supposed to be and do and look like. Just the observation that a healthy body does not seek to uh, cut off or anesthetize or get rid of the part that is in pain, but actually rushes to aid the weakest part. Like, that's what the body does. I just appreciate how many layers there are to this conversation and how you open up those layers for individuals and for uh, families and for us as a community of believers. Well, thank you, Carmen. I I felt honored and privileged and, and divinely appointed frankly, in the time that I spent with Dr. Brand, because today there are very few people who put things together. We're, we're really good at taking things apart. You know, so science, scientists deal with science, theologians deal with theologians, with theology, and Bible teachers deal with the Bible, and then the rest of us kind of um, go like a cafeteria between the various fields. Dr. Brand was a rare person who was a scientist and a doctor, had studied theology, had been a missionary, and was a great humanitarian. And he was able to put these things together for me in a way that I needed at a crucial time in my faith. And that's why I spent the better part of a year reframing, to use your phrase, reframing that material that I was gifted with and presenting it for a new generation. You're you're absolutely right. We need we need hope. We need we need a recovery of the ideal of what the church should be. The book is Fearfully and Wonderfully. The author is Philip Yancey. You can find it at philipyancey.com. Actually, you can connect with Philip there and all the things that he is up to. You can find the book everywhere that it's sold, thanks to our friends at Ivy Press for bringing it to us. Philip, thank you so much for joining us today on Morning with Carmen. It was my pleasure. Great conversation, and I learned some things from you, so thank you. What a delight. What a delight. Thank you so much. We'll be right back. Okay, so I want you to remember that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. I want you to consider today just how extraordinary it is the God of the universe conceived of you. Not just, you know, your personality, not just you as a soulish, well, disembodied soul, but you as a person in the flesh, in this time and in this space, at this point in human history, right here and right now, and deployed you intentionally as an ambassador of his kingdom, as an agent of his grace, as a child upon whom he lavishes his grace. I want you to remember today that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. And that means that we can enter into the world not only without fear, but with great wonder. So be an agent of, uh, of awe and wonder in the world that God so loves today. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. Have a great day and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. 
That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.